Right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this Marshall Society event. We're very excited to be joined today by the 76th U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Jack Lew. He served under Obama and Biden between 2013 and 2017. He also served under um, uh, Bill Clinton as the Director of the Office of Management and Budget and a Special Assistant to the President. This is going to be an entirely Q&A session. We're going to try and get through as many questions as we can, looking back at the Obama economy and looking forward at the Biden economy as well. So please do submit those in the live chat uh, as we go along. So I think we're going to start, the first section we're going to start with is talk, looking back at Obama's economy and the Secretary's experiences. So how would you describe the economy that you left Donald Trump? Was it still recovering from the scars of the 2008 recession or did you hand him a booming economy? Uh, we, we handed off a very healthy economy that was growing uh, at a good rate with unemployment uh, at a low rate. Um, and I think if you look at where the economy was when COVID hit, we were growing for 10 years. Seven of the first seven of the 10 years were in the Obama period. Um, you know, obviously at the beginning of that growth period, it was a little bit slower than we would have hoped coming out of the great financial crisis. It took a while to get uh, the economy moving again and to see the job creation uh, start to climb. But I think by 2017, when the transition occurred, the economy was in a very stable, steady place. And much of the progress that we saw uh, for the next couple of years was a continuation of what was inherited. Uh, so you lost the Democratic Senate in 2015. How much of a constraint was that for you? And how much of a constraint do you think the fact that Joe Biden only has a slim majority in the Senate will be to his agenda? Well, um, 2015 wasn't the beginning of challenging times. Uh, in 2012, uh, we saw a, a midterm election where the House uh, flipped uh, into uh, Republican control. And um, the combination of controlling neither the House or the Senate uh, is quite a limitation on what you can get done. Uh, it really doesn't matter um, uh, whether it's reversed or the way we experienced it. It's very hard to work when Congress is entirely uh, controlled uh, by the other party. Um, I think the, the, you know, the, the truth is the exception to what I said is when there's a realization that the only way uh, to make progress is to work together and to make compromises. Um, in the 25 years that I was in the policy process, the discovery of that usually involved some pretty unpleasant experience that proved that the alternative was worse. So if I go back into the 1990s, uh, and in the Clinton administration, um, the, with the Republican uh, Congress, it was pretty resistant uh, to working with the president until uh, a tactic that the House Republicans, led then by Speaker Gingrich, used backfired on. They shut the government down. It was very unpopular. Uh, the backlash meant that they couldn't do that again. And it essentially shifted the dynamics so that the, you know, once adversaries said, if we're going to get anything done, which we need to, we have to work together. And it turned out that negotiating together, Clinton and Gingrich could actually get a fair number of things done, you know, in terms of uh, both budget and uh, policy. Um, in the Obama years, that never really came together. Um, what happened in the Obama years was that the tactic that Gingrich had started in the 1990s of shutting down the government in order to create leverage was repeated. It was repeated in the form of trying to force either a government shutdown or a default on the national debt. And um, one might have thought that when that failed, you'd have the same kind of recalibration. But it didn't occur. There was a, a kind of unwillingness to find a, a compromise. And we ended up in situations where, um, candidly, very little legislative business was done other than the routine maintenance of funding of the government uh, and the like. 
I mean, there were, uh, you asked me the hardest period, it wasn't 2015. The hardest period was 2011, 2012. Um, when with, with the Senate, we didn't control the House. And the House was absolutely stuck with a very conservative agenda, unwilling to engage in a, in a serious uh, compromise. Um, it takes two sides to reach a compromise. Um, it, it takes leaders wanting to do it and the ability to bring followers along. And both are hard. Um, I hope that we're entering a period where there will be some ability to do that. Because when you look at a Senate that's 50-50 and a House with a majority of three votes, very narrow margins, very easy for a very small number, even one legislator, to say, I won't go along unless. And candidly, the best thing for the country would be if we could pass things with some semblance of a, of a real bipartisan majority. I don't think we're going to see overwhelming bipartisan majorities, given the highly polarized uh, state of affairs today. But I don't think it's impossible that you'll see, instead of things passing by 51 votes, that things pass by 56, 57 votes in the Senate. Um, as a practical matter, the difference between winning over the two most conservative Democratic votes and satisfying you know, the five or six most willing Republican votes is not a substantive issue, it's a political issue. A common criticism of Obama was that he led to a large build of debt. How problematic do you think the government- yeah, I couldn't hear you. Under Obama, a, a common criticism is that he led to a large buildup of debt. How problematic do you think the government debt issue is to the US? So I think if you look at the management of the debt and the deficit under Obama, he actually uh, did the opposite. Uh, he inherited uh, an economic crisis and a budget crisis where the debt as a deficit as a percentage of G GDP was climbing to roughly 10%. He stabilized it at 3%, which in budget terminology is basically just the cost of servicing the national debt. So spending on new things wasn't adding to the deficit. Um, that's, that was way out of whack before COVID because the Trump administration with Congress did tax cuts and spending and didn't pay for hardly anything. And the deficit as a percentage of GDP was growing. And then it went crazy after uh, the COVID crisis. So I actually think we left a very sustainable, stable fiscal path. Um, the debt as a percentage of GDP is now much larger than it was at the end of the Obama administration. And even now, it's not an immediate crisis. If it continues to grow at this rate, it could become a crisis. But the debt as a percentage of GDP um, was not, uh, it was in the mid 70s uh, at the end of the Obama administration. It's now uh, hovering around 100% of GDP. So the last four years have seen that, uh, that get much more uh, significant. And I think the danger is that it, that growth in the debt as a percentage of GDP could be used as an excuse to uh, cut short what's needed to get the economy truly healthy after COVID. The right time to worry about the deficit and the debt is when we're out of this crisis. And you're already hearing some born again uh, budget balancers who didn't much care about the deficit when they were voting for tax cuts, but now are saying the last relief measures would be an unfair burden to the next generation. Um, I actually think what would be an unfair you know, legacy to the next generation is an, a broken economy. And what we learned in 2008 to 2011, that maintaining stimulus long enough may be the difference between um, reaching our potential GDP or not and getting job creation back to a decent level um, you know, in a matter of years more quickly. Do you think Donald Trump will have a lasting legacy on the economy, or do you think Joe Biden, with these executive orders and with other action, will be able to overturn a lot 
of what Trump did? Well, I think the, the Trump legacy is mostly going to be one of aberrant behavior, um, not policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that many of the policies are being reversed by executive order. The only real legislative policy was the tax cut. And over time, most of the regulatory policy will either be reversed or will migrate to a more sensible next place. Um, The legacy that I fear the Trump administration leaves is one of um, unpredictability and fear that the stable US um, presence in the economy in the world um, may or may not be something that can be relied on. I think that what Joe Biden is doing in his early days is sending a powerful message that the U.S. is back. We're not going back to the policies of the past. We're going to do the policies that you need for today and tomorrow, but that we're going to be the kind of stable, responsible player that our allies can rely on and our adversaries can understand. Um, The challenge is going to be, uh, until we get a few election cycles out, there will be the lingering question, can America do that again? And I don't think we're alone uh, in that department in terms of uh, countries wondering about the kind of direction of populist sentiment driving um, both outcomes of elections and policy. Um, And it would be a good thing for liberal democracy if we all showed that more uh, adherence to stability. Okay, uh, well, well, we'll go on to the next section now, thinking a bit more about what to expect from Joe Biden. So you are an early supporter of Biden. What made you support him over the large range of candidates that were competing? Well, first, I, I, I've known Joe Biden for 25 years. I've worked closely with him. I know that the, the decent man that people saw in the campaign is the real man. Um, he's an authentic a reflection of himself when he campaigns. Uh, In some years that has been a a detriment to him because his authenticity doesn't always have the the polish that people are looking for. So if a malapropism uh, could end your candidacy, he wouldn't be your man. He has a tendency to kind of use language uh, with less discipline sometimes. But I will say he ran the most disciplined campaign he ever ran. There were no significant misstatements. And his fundamental decency and his pledge to bring the country back and to restore the soul of America was what the election was about. Um, I think as far as policy goes, he was articulating a kind of sensible center-left view, understanding the need to pull from not just the center, but leaning in both left and right directions to try to bring people together. Um, and you know, candidly, I made the assessment uh, you know, in the fall of 2019 that he was our best chance to win the election. Um, and the most important thing, uh, whatever people's loyalties to other candidates might be, was having a successful candidacy. So I was all in. Um, so uh, people are probably aware about Joe Biden's policies, but when working with him, what impression did you get about his economic instincts and his vision? Do you think he's more likely? Sorry, to... I, I just couldn't hear you. Oh, what, um, what signals when you were working with him did you get about his economic instincts and his vision? Do you think he's more likely to be cautious or is he more likely to be ambitious? So he has a tendency uh, towards both in the sense that he thinks ambitiously and he legislates uh, cautiously. He legislates trying to bring people together. The two are not inconsistent. You go into a legislative negotiation with a vision and your, your ability to manage in our system and get results uh, is very much a function of uh, understanding where uh, where a consensus can be formed, and, you know, where your votes come from and where enthusiasm can come from. Um, I think when you look at his instincts on economic and social policy, uh, let me start with economic policy. He was always very focused 
on making sure that we worried about you know the the bottom to the upper middle not just the middle to the bottom um, his idea of how you build a consensus and how you move the country forward is growing the middle class and worrying about the most disadvantaged not choosing between them not that he's anti-business um, or anti-people who've been very successful, but he does uh, have a view that if you've been very fortunate, more is expected of you in terms of the fair share of the tax bill and the like. Um, so he could have been expected to want to write a large tax refund check or, or, or stimulus check to a broad number of people. And the lack of targeting, which the part of me that strives towards efficient economic uh, policy uh, is somewhat skeptical of, is actually part of how he thinks about doing that. And if you think about the arithmetic of that, if you give $2,000 to somebody earning $100,000, and you give $2,000 to somebody earning $20,000, it's the same amount of money, but it is a bigger percentage uh, of the income of the person at the bottom. It has an inherently progressive aspect to it, but it's also a shared benefit. So in a, in a negotiation, would he be willing to target more? Of course, you know, I think there's room there and I would expect he would be willing to. But it's not surprising to me that he's drawn to that kind of a policy. On social policy, you know, I watched his evolution and in some ways, evolved with him on some of these issues. You know, uh, when, when the Supreme Court in the United States was ruling on same-sex marriage, when policy questions were being made about recognizing same-sex marriages, um, he moved quite quickly after a long period when he realized that the world had changed. And he quite, passionately described it in terms of watching the change through the eyes and experiences of his grandchildren who were going to school with kids who grew up in different kinds of homes than he knew when he was going to school. And that there were homes that were loving homes with two parents, even if they didn't reflect the traditional family that he grew up with. That was the kind of way Joe Biden changes his view. Um, and um, you know, I'd say on issues re related to the kind of reckoning on race in America today, um, he didn't have to come from a place where he was in any way um, uh, uh, late to the recognition that there was an issue. But he saw the urgency of the moment when the George Floyd killings and the killing and the protests afterwards changed the, the, the way the issue was being debated, not just in communities of color, but in cross American society, from corporate boardrooms to newsrooms to uh, public uh, 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 arenas. And I don't think it's a, an accident that he is holding on to that set of issues, not just because of the people who voted for him, um, though obviously people are conscious of where their political base is, it's because it is a moment, not unlike the moment that Lyndon Johnson found himself in, in the late 1960s, where something significant could happen in this country if it's managed with real political leadership. So, you know, that, that, that's, that's a long way of saying the way I see him acting is consistent with the person I've known for a very long time. Yeah. He's brought in quite a lot of Obama administration officials as well. Do you think he's likely to be a continuity of Obama, uh, or do you think he's more likely to diverge? I think on many, many issues, um, four years uh, and a reconsideration of where are we today will make a difference in terms of policies. Um, our economic situation is different. The geopolitical landscape has changed. Um, there are many things that if the same people who were making decisions 
from 2009 to 2016 were to look at them again, and in some cases that is in fact what is going on, they would see things quite differently just because you have to take a fresh look. Uh, I always found as somebody who was in government you know, for three separate chapters that one of the benefits of going away and coming back is it frees you to take a fresh look. It frees you not just to look at what did you say on this issue last month or last year, but to say, let's look at it from the facts that we see today and what is the right answer for today. I think the people that he's chosen for the administration who have served in the Obama administration are going to be doing that, whether it's on how does the U.S. Reclaim its place with its alliance partners to how does the U.S. deal with you know competitors or adversaries? Um, he's not just going to take a page from January 2017 and go from there. He's going to look at where we are today, and I don't think his values have changed. I don't think the people serving with him their values have changed, but the situation is different. So. There, on, on China, for example, they will come up with a policy for China that makes sense in 2021, which is not the same as what you would have come up with in 2013 at the beginning of Obama's second term, or certainly in 2009 in the middle of the great financial crisis. Um, we've got a question about the US COVID stimulus plan. Would a 1.9 trillion stimulus plan lead to high inflation, and would that be a problem? I have a little trouble hearing you. Sorry. Uh, would a 1.9 trillion stimulus plan would that lead to high inflation, and would that be a problem? So I, I don't think there's any automatic connection between the stimulus plan and inflation, um, in the sense that we're not seeing any serious signs of inflation in the economy now. Um, interest rates are remaining in the near zero band, and you're seeing a little bit of movement in the 10 and 30 year numbers, but they're so far from 2% interest rates that interest is, you know, costs are not likely to be the driver. We have a lot of people who are not working, so labor pressures are not that great. We have you know, sectors of the economy that are hotter than others. Uh, face masks are a lot more expensive than they were a year ago. Um, you know, technology uh, may be a little bit more expensive. But we're not seeing broad signs of inflation in the kind of, except for maybe the components, the materials that go into technology products, because everybody is using more technology um, because of just macroeconomic uh, conditions. Um, I think that the risk of inflation right now in the immediate like one to three year period is not that high. Uh, I think central bankers are gonna keep trying to get inflation to 2% for a while after we get out of this. The question to me is a medium to long-term question. If governments uh, and individuals are borrowing uh, at the rate the government is borrowing now, individuals presumably will be borrowing more once life gets back to normal. If competition for credit drives up interest rates, if an economy that has uh, more stimulus than it needs three years from now is still getting that stimulus, you know, I don't think the laws of macroeconomics have been repealed. Um, I actually think the danger of reimposing fiscal constraints too soon has the risk of uh, depressing future economic activity more than spending the right amount or sufficient amount on getting the economy back to healthy runs a risk of inflation. And the question will come, when do you stop and how do you stop? And um, that is going to be a hard decision because people get used to spending money they don't have. So having the conversation is an important one. But I'll just go back again to 2010 and 11. When we threw on the brakes and went into reverse, it was a mistake. Uh, 
um, our economy needed stimulus for another couple of years, and we couldn't give it the stimulus it needed. Central bank wanted more fiscal policy. It used the monetary policy tools of QE more heavily than they otherwise would have had to because they weren't getting support from the fiscal side. In your country, uh, your government went into an austerity uh, period, which I thought was a, a mistake in terms of solving the long-term economic problems, none of which is inconsistent with long-term having sustainable fiscal paths. It's all a question of timing. The problem is the political solutions that one can arrive at are usually the immediate. You can stop spending the money you spend now. The longer-term decisions about a sensible long-term tax policy, a sensible long-term policy on how do we pay for what we in the United States call entitlements like healthcare, Medicare, um, those are hard. And where you end up having action is on the things that are most immediate. And that's what happened in 11 and 12. And if that happens now, we'll just see, I'm not saying it will put us back in recession, but we'll see that kind of very slow return to healthy growth rates that is very unpleasant for the people who don't have work. And it's just not a great environment in terms of confidence and business investment and therefore hiring. So I think revenue will go up if the economy does better. And if we provide sufficient stimulus, and I would define the stimulus, and I should be clear, 1.9 is not a magic number. You know, I, I, I think that the, the $900 uh, billion in December was a down payment because it was about half of what I would have done at that time. Um, the 1.9, if I got to target it perfectly myself, I could reduce the number. But if you want the economy to feel like it's um, growing in a good, sustainable way, we need to do more. If you don't, what's going to happen is unemployment insurance is going to run out before people have jobs. Housing assistance is going to run out before people can pay their rent and evictions will start. State and local governments will run out of money and there'll be layoffs. That's not the way to get an economy that has just had the worst economic damage since the Great Depression back to full strength, which is not to say that you don't have to worry three to five years from now. But we have time for that. Okay, uh, the final question, uh, question of this section, how do you rate Janet Yellen as the next Secretary of the Treasury? Well, I've known Janet Yellen for a very long time. I was thrilled yesterday that uh, she was sworn in the day before when she was overwhelmingly confirmed. We worked together in the Clinton administration when I was OMB director and she was at the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, we worked very closely when I was Treasury Secretary and she was chair of the Fed. She's got a combination of intellect, integrity, and decency that are, you know, just outstanding. And she's a teacher par excellence. She explains clearly and she listens well. To navigate the space that President Biden has to navigate, he's, he's going to find her a tremendous ally and, 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 and a member of the team um, because she'll be able to talk to people that other people might not be able to talk to. They'll listen when she talks. They may or may not come over, but until people listen, they're never going to come over. You, if, if, you're, if, if your goal is to persuade, having somebody with that kind of capacity is very important. And I think she brings to the Treasury a combination of technical uh, skill um, and values that are just right for the moment. As a labor economist, she will always be focused on what do the macro policy mean, what do the macro policies mean in terms of the job opportunities for people working their way up. Uh, on an issue like climate change, which is frankly more central on Treasury's agenda than it has ever been before. She's going to help drive that discussion forward to use all the tools. Every Secretary of the Treasury um, comes with a more developed set of skills in some of the areas than others. There's, I don't think anyone who's ever come 
with 100% experience in everything. She may have the most experience in the most areas uh, of any of the people I know who've uh, moved in there. Uh, on green policy, we've had a question uh, from our viewers. How can the new administration, uh, how can the new administration pursue ambitious climate change policies given uh, the long-term payoff and powerful internal opposition? Well, I think the, the, the challenge um, is not the long-term payoff. The challenge is where you were a few moments ago, a very thin margin uh, in the Congress. So the question will become, how much can they do by executive action? And what, if anything, can they do by legislative action? Um, I think that they're moving quickly on the executive front but many of the things that have the most substantive uh, effect aren't things you can do by executive order in a week. It's gonna take a year or two uh, for some of these rules to work their way through the system. Um, I think he's got good people in place to develop uh, policies to do that. Um, I think the real question is, to what extent can there be a conversation with Congress to reach a consensus on some of the things that can only be done through legislation. And in doing that, find a way to create some sense of permanence in the policy, even in the things one could do by executive action, but which are more subject to change if the political um, pendulum swings. Um, I think the jury's out on that. You, you, you look at the Senate, um, I don't know if you have all 50 uh, Democrats in the same place. I mean, I'll just say, and I don't mean this critically of him as an individual, one of the 50 is a senator from coal country, West Virginia, um, who has different views on some of these issues than many other Democrats do. Um, I, I hope that the rhetoric about um, the urgency of climate and the need for unity um, is something that helps bring people kind of out of the corners into the center asking, what can we agree on? Are there tax policies we can agree on? Are there regulatory policies we can agree on? I think it's way too soon to have a, a con conviction as to whether that's policy. I'm an optimist. If you say it's impossible and you don't try, you always fail. Um, and I think that one thing about Joe Biden um, is he's got an instinct to try to find the place where people can find agreement, you know, which is you know, more highly developed than almost any uh, leader I've worked with. Okay, we'll go on to our next section now, which is uh, trade and the U.S.'s place in the world economy. Uh, so it seems in recent years the conversation in the U.S. has changed quite a lot, and there's now a lot more hostility towards China. Uh, Joe Biden described the relationship, I think, as competitors the, between the US and China. What do you think the US's economic relationship should be with China? The US-China uh, economic and geopolitical relationship is probably the singular most important bilateral relationship in the world. Um, you can look at US-Europe and say it's on par, but in terms of two countries, no, nothing is we're the only two superpowers in the world, um, albeit it's still at different scales, um, and we're the two great economic powers of the world. Our systems are very different. Our values are very different in so many ways. Um, I think that the, the reality of where the two countries stand today is there's a growing sense of, um, of the, the two economies being uh, delinked and a growing sense of, of conflict um, growing in likelihood. My own view uh, is that the world is not a safer place. China and the US are not a safer place if one gives in to the inevitability of that drift. Now, how do you manage that? I think you manage it by being very clear and tough about the things that you feel are most in your national interest. So questions of national security, whether it's uh, geopolitical issues like freedom of movement on the seas or 
technology issues like the ability uh, of, of a potential adversary to go into your um, data systems uh, in, in a way that could hurt you. You have to look at those issues and be clear-headed about them and tough where you need to be tough. I think what's going to change for sure is the tone of the conversation will change. You will not hear President Biden or any of the people who work for President Biden using ugly language to talk about other countries of the world. They kind of you know, sound like racial slurs more than they sound like uh, geopolitical positions. That's just not who he is. It's not who his team is. That ought not to be confused for weakness it, because you may see more um, um, constancy of purpose. So you take an issue like human rights. Um, I think that's a serious issue that this new administration will have to deal with. You know, forced labor in Xinjiang. Um, what is and is not happening, you know, in, you know, in places like Hong Kong. Um, those issues are going to matter to the new administration. Um, fair trade, fair competition. Um, there's not a lot of space for this administration to look the other way if there's either dumping or unfair subsidies or currency manipulation. Um, the challenge is going to be with all of those things, how do you then not be on the inevitable path towards conflict? Well, here's a few things that are already happening. Reengagement in Paris. Paris was a place, Paris Climate Accord. Pa Paris was a place where the US and China in the Obama years were working together. We can again work together. Um, Reengaging in the WHO. If you had said to me five years ago the United States might withdraw from the World Health Organization, it wouldn't have crossed anyone's mind. If you had said, does the World Health Organization need to be reformed? Of course, people would have said, yes, there's things we ought to do. Well, the goal of reforming things like the World Health Organization or the World Trade Organization are things where the US and China may well be able to engage in, in a conversation. Fundamentally, I think what's going to change is that the dynamic should not be U.S. v. China, U.S. v. China. The more the United States can work with our allies, with our European allies, our Asian allies, and work on an agenda where it's not China making concessions for the U.S., but China choosing whether it wants to be with the world of nations or not, I think the more successful we'll be. China is very pragmatic. Um, and um, I think with the U.S. going it alone, it actually opened opportunities for China to move in and try to fill some of the space we left behind. Um, I don't actually criticize China for that. If we abandon, you know, the stage, um, you know, it was it was nature abhors a vacuum. Um, I think that when you look at who most of the countries of the world would rather be allied with. Look at the you know, COVID vaccine. If we're not providing a COVID vaccine and China has one, the fact that ours is 95% effective and theirs is 50% effective actually doesn't matter because the only one you can get is the 50% effective one. If the US is a reliable partner making a 95% effective vaccine more broadly available, I think we remain the driving you know, force in the world. And that's not a hostile thing with China. You know, it would be a good thing if China's vaccine program was part of a global effort and they were at 95% of the world. Because I think there's a lot of the world that is gonna be looking for supply for some time. I'm just using that as an example of how it's not zero sum necessarily. On the direct issues where there's tension, I don't expect to see a switch thrown anytime soon, where the US radically changes its approach. You heard most of the uh, officials in their confirmation hearings take a very tough line on China. On the other hand, that doesn't mean they're not going to engage, and it doesn't mean that they're not going to find pathways to make progress on issues of common concern. And I hope 
that where decisions of the Trump administration were based on bad facts, bad reasoning, or wrong policy, they feel they have the room to make changes. Um, but I don't think they can right out of the box come out and say X, Y, and Z will change. Why do you think there's been such hostility to China in the US? The UK, uh, the Cameron government especially, seems to be quite open to developing relationships with China. And actually, they were encouraging people uh, to learn Chinese in school. Why do you think the US is so hostile? Is it perhaps that they see China as a threat to their status as a world power? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think um, to look at the UK in 2021 and ask that question, you probably would get a different answer than if you asked that question about the UK 50 years ago with other rising powers. Um, the UK is in a different position vis-a-vis -vis China than the United States. We are the two you know, largest economies of the world. We are the two you know, either superpowers or potential superpowers in the world today. So it is a unique uh, relationship. I actually don't think most Americans are hostile to, to China or the Chinese people um, on, on, um, on, uh, on, in any broad way. I think the, the language of the Trump administration was offensive to many. The, the idea that Asian Americans are subjected to hostile um, you know, act, actions because of that rhetoric is something that has to change. Um, I think what Americans have been increasingly concerned about with regard to China is that China has to play fair, and it hasn't. You know, all the years that China was doing things with subsidies and um, through its currency practices was seen as hollowing out the American um, manufacturing economy. You know, some of that would have happened if China had played fair. The extent to which it happened was deeper and faster because they didn't play fair. And you know, that's something that is going to have to be you know, addressed as we go forward and look at how do we open markets to each other? How do we uh, think about trade in the future? Um, I, you know, Americans have benefited from the US-China trade in many ways, you know, whether it's the prices and quantities of goods that they've experienced or the lack of, you know, conflict between our two countries, you know, for much of the, of, of the period of growing closer relations. But the kind of end of the WTO accession, China becoming a full player, was, is a sense in the United States that China took advantage of its status as a developing economy to use unfair tools in a way that hurt the U.S. economy. And you know, the, we talk about those issues. When I was in government, we talked about those issues on a bilateral basis. I don't think it helps to turn it into, you know, the way that you know, President Trump turned the virus into the China virus. That's not the solution. That, 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 that's not an excuse for totally mismanaging the pandemic domestically in the United States. Um, so you have to kind of separate the issues. What do you think, what's your opinion of the Buy American policy? It seems a bit like a blatant attempt to appease uh, Trump voters. Um, and it seems like it might be, uh, it might self-harm the US government and might not even be uh, practical. What's your opinion about it? I mean, the, the reality is these Buy America practices have been in place for a very long time. Um, the, and it's like the turn of the dial a little bit more than it is throwing a switch. So um, I think it's been carefully crafted to be consistent, consistent with our trade obligations. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't view it um, so much as, uh, the way you describe it as kind of a return to policies that were in place. I, I, some of the Buy America practices lead you to places that are a little absurd. I mean, we had, there were Buy America provisions in the Recovery Act back in 2009. 
and you know it affected some of the infrastructure transactions between the United States and Canada. And we had a situation where Canada was paying for something and we had a Buy America provision that said they had to use American products. And you know things like that don't make sense. But you know, in government programs, um, I think they're, they're not new. Let, let me t just t describe something that I think is different now than it was even when I was in a position of authority. Um, one of the things the pandemic made clear was that there's an, uh, uh, the, the reliance on uh, supply chains that may not be there when you need them really is a national security issue. It doesn't mean you have to do everything by yourself. But you know, we've long accepted that in defense procurement, if you're potentially in a war, you have to be able to, with your own capacity and that of your closest allies, be able to meet all your needs. Um, for some of the basic, uh, if pandemic is a new uh, reality, and we have to deal with the risk of this recurring, you know, at some point in the future, asking, can you respond quickly with your domestic capacity to produce the things you need to protect your population is a fair question. I don't think that's going to lead to all health equipment has to be domestically procured. But you want to have the capacity to ramp up when you need it. It, you know, to take care of, you know, of urgent national needs. You know, one of the famous aphorisms about military uh, uh, strategy is that every army marches on its belly. If you can't feed the troops, the troops can't fight. So things like the supply of food, the supply of medicine, they are security issues. And um, I think that the move towards globalization happened so quickly, and it was managed so much by a private sector that was looking to drive down costs and maximize profits, that I don't know that anyone stepped back and asked the question, are we leaving a strategic gap there? And I think it's a good thing that that question is being asked. Now we've got another viewer question. To what extent do you believe that the economies of the US and China are sufficiently poised as of now to avoid any long-term negative economic effects from COVID-19? I think China, if we can you know, believe the statistics, which are always a little on the, on the soft side, has bounced back pretty well. Um, and, you know, whether it's up uh, as much as it is uh, in the official numbers, it's clearly People are back at work, school is back, you know, activities have resumed. Um, and and um, I think the United States is in, a, in an in-between place, but it's not because of the economic response, it's because of the health policy response. Until you can open your economy up fully, economic policy alone isn't a substitute for people going to work. It isn't a substitute for people going to school. I mean, you can do wage replacement through unemployment insurance, but you don't get productive output from that. And um, you know, for young kids who are losing a year or two of, of, of normal educational development and growth, there's going to be a challenge that's different in the United States than, uh, than in China, where it was a much shorter period. China did a poor job at the very beginning they got their hands around it. How did they get their hands around it? They have a very authoritarian system and you followed the rules and there were no questions asked. We have a very decentralized system where there's a lack of comfort making a lot of absolute rules. And we didn't until a week ago have a president who was willing to push that to the limit. I think the fact that we're now seeing national policies put in place, national leadership being put in place, the United States will get back to a much better place. But the last year is, is, is going to leave a, it's going to leave a hole in the economy that it takes longer to fill. And there's a tail in terms of the human cost, both in terms of getting people back to work, getting people caught up in school. I don't think these are unsolvable problems, but um, 
it, much of it was self-inflicted because of what I saw as a both incompetent and irresponsible way that the disease was managed. Okay, uh, the next section, the final section, uh, about infrastructure. So infrastructure, I think, is quite a, a significant problem for the US. Why do you think infrastructure has been neglected? And do you think infrastructure problems are maybe a symptom of the short-term nature of the US politics? So I, I think um, you know, infrastructure is something that everyone can agree we want more of, and then the question comes, how do you pay for it? And um, there's less unity uh, of purpose in terms of deciding how to pay for it. Um, I think we've seen, um, look, the history of the United States was massive investment in infrastructure um, that led to the, the kind of dynamic economy in many periods, but most recently from the 50s, you know, through the 20th century. Um, we've been drawing down some of our reserves, aging highways, aging ports, aging airports. We're not the only country, the only developed country to do that. Um, I think we've seen a resurgence of investment in many areas. Uh, you know, it, here, I live in New York City. Um, when I can fly again, I'm delighted that I'm going to be going to an airport, uh, you know, which has been rebuilt, uh, you know, during the COVID crisis. You know, that was a project that was initiated through a public-private partnership, some federal funding. We got to find more ways to do that. I think that President Biden um, is a huge believer in infrastructure. He managed a very large infrastructure program as part of the Recovery Act in um, in. 2009 10. Um, and I think he's going to look for the largest infrastructure investment he can get a broad consensus behind. Um, if we do part of it as a recovery package and don't have to pay for it because it's stimulus, that will be easy but smaller. Mm -hmm. The challenge will be to build a consensus to say, we need this not just for two to three years, we need this for five to 10 years. And we need to pull everyone together and say, here's how we're going to pay for it. That's going to be harder. You know, um, it's not so much the short termism um, as it is the, the kind of political difficulty of, of, you know, in a world where from, from the 1990s until the COVID crisis, mostly things like this had to be paid for with the exception of things like the Recovery Act during the Great Recession. Um, that's where the stumbling block has been. It's not that uh, if you don't want to raise the gasoline tax and you don't want to have an energy tax and you don't want to um, cut uh, social spending and you have to pay for it, the amount of infrastructure you can afford tends to be reduced. I think there's a growing need of, a growing understanding of the need for the investment. I think there's a growing impatience with the inadequacy when people get stuck in traffic because the roads are inadequate or the experience at an airport feels you know, more like a nightmare than a good dream. And I think the public is open to uh, dealing with this. Um, I think leaders have to be willing to do some hard things. And maybe that's a long-term you know, ish question because the benefits come at the end of the road. You pay the price for paying for it at the beginning of the journey. And, um, you know, I, 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 that, that's where the, that's where the kind of rubber hits the road, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, how, in, how important was infrastructure for Obama? Was it a, a top priority for him? Well, it was a critical part of the, of the Recovery Act. Um, you know, it was hundreds of billions of dollars, which at the time seemed like a lot of money. You know, and it, it was the largest uh, stimulus package since Franklin Roosevelt and the Great Depression. Um, it's only because of the massive, you know, scale of the COVID crisis and response that those numbers no longer seem large. Um, you know, there was a highway investment program. You know, candidly, we came close to funding a much bigger infrastructure initiative using the opportunity to reform our tax system to combine infrastructure with a, with a rewrite of our tax code. Um, in the end, that didn't come about, um, my view, because 
Republican legislators didn't really want to have that kind of a historic uh, accomplishment on President Obama's scorecard. Um, and sadly, when there was a Republican president and a Republican Congress, they rewrote the tax code and they used all of the space they had to cut corporate individual tax rates and they didn't invest anything in infrastructure. Had they invested something in infrastructure, they probably could have had a bipartisan bill. Uh, we've got another question from a viewer. Uh, why is Biden increasingly framing fundamentally economic issues through the lens of race and sex? For example, COVID relief, relief funds, why are they being rationed by race and gender instead of need? Well, I think um, if you look at the incidence of COVID infection, um, they're skewed by race and socioeconomic status. If you look at access to vaccines, they're skewed the same way. Um, if you look at who has the ability to work remotely and who doesn't have the ability to work remotely, again, it's skewed the same way. These issues are in the DNA of our economy. And um, if you didn't do something about it, we could deal with the kind of top line of responding to COVID and not respond at all to any of those underlying inequities. Um, I think sadly, coming out of COVID, the income inequality issues and wealth inequalities that pre-existed um, are going to be worse, not better, because of the, the fact that the incidence of um, burden is not being borne equally. So I actually think um, it would be highly short-sighted to, de to deal with this just as a macro issue. One has to look at how it is distributed. If you ask why is trade policy hard to sell in the United States, the re I think the answer is it doesn't matter if you can convince people that the top line for US GDP growth will be better. If they think that as it flows through the economy, it's all gonna go one way and that it is not gonna to go to the bottom of the middle. So I think these issues are related. Okay, uh, we'll finish off with one question then. We're just about reaching our time. Uh, so overall, in four years time, where do you think the US economy will be? Do you think we'll still be in the shadow of COVID-19 or do you think the economy will have a, had a rapid bounce back? I think there's certainly the opportunity uh, for a good bounce back. Um, first of all, um, there's a lot of latent demand uh, because people haven't gone on vacation, they haven't been to the theater, they haven't been to a sporting event, they've not purchased clothing to go outside of their home. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of latent demand. Secondly, for people who have um, income, the fact that there's been depressed demand means their savings have gone up. So even before you get to the government stimulus, there's some reserve potential in the, in the economy. And third, the government is responding. The $900 billion at the end of the year you know, brought the total government fiscal response to about $3 trillion. Um, there's going to be another response, whether it's the full 1.9 or some meaningful percentage of it. So I think there's every reason to believe that the top line of the U.S. economy can come out of this um, in reasonable shape, you know, with faster growth in the second half of the year than we would have otherwise expected. I don't think that, the going back to your last question, we can assume that that benefit will be equally distributed through the economy. We're going to come out of this recession, out of this pandemic, with something on the order of 10 million people unemployed and roughly the same number of families um, who are at threat of eviction if they don't get assistance to pay back rent. Um, the social problems in our country and economic problems in our country cannot get better if we don't deal with those underlying inequities. And um, you know, I think confidence in the system, support for the decision-making and uh, decision makers and the legitimacy of our institutions phrase when it doesn't respond. It's sometimes phrased in irrational ways. 
by electing a, a right-wing populist who does nothing for working people. That's what we did four years ago. Um, I think it's pretty important for liberal democracies for government to be responsive to the top line and to the sense that government works for all the people. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's been a fascinating discussion. It's been great to have your perspective uh, as somebody who's worked closely with Joe Biden and has had such a powerful role uh, in, in the US government. So thank you very much uh, for that discussion. I hope everybody enjoyed it. It was good to be able to get through quite a few of your questions. So thank you very good much. Good to be with you, George. Have a, have a good day.